is the review of Democracy Podcast. I'm Ferenc Lotso, an editor at RevDem, and it is my distinct pleasure to host Mark R. Beisinger today. Welcome to the show, Professor Beisinger. Thanks, Ferenc. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you at RevDem. Mark R. Beisinger is Henry W. Putnam Professor in the Department of Politics at Princeton. He previously served on the faculties of the University of Wisconsin-Madison and of Harvard University. His main fields of interest are social movements, revolutions, nationalism, state building, and imperialism, with special reference to the Soviet Union and the post-Soviet states. In addition to numerous articles and book chapters, Mark Beisinger is also the author or editor of now six books, which include Nationalist Mobilization and the Collapse of the Soviet State from 2002, and the volume Historical Legacies of Communism in Russia and Eastern Europe, which he has co-edited with Stephen Kotkin and is a book from 2014. He has received several prestigious awards for his scholarship and his research has been supported by numerous leading academic institutions. I should mention that Mark Beisinger has also acted as the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies and as director of the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies, among others. Now, his newest monograph, which will be out in April 2022, is titled The Revolutionary City, Urbanization and the Global Transformation of Rebellion. It is a work of enormous scope and ambition, an original and nuanced monograph, which I have personally read with great pleasure and great benefit. Now, let me perhaps begin our conversation today with a quote from this new book. You write, if nat natural analogies are to be drawn rather than earthquakes or wildfires, urban civic revolutions develop more like hurricanes. You name your own approach a probabilistic structural one and write that your monograph, and I'm quoting again, attempts to put structural explanation back squarely into the study of revolutions by embedding revolutionary processes and interactions within the structural factors that condition, facilitate, or constrain them. It positions large-scale structural factors like urbanization, geopolitics, and technological change at the center of an understanding of how revolution has evolved over time, and integrate structure and agency into a broader probabilistic approach to revolutionary contention, end of quote. So as a first question, may I ask how you would characterize this probabilistic structural approach of yours and how does it relate to or maybe differ from previous studies of revolution? And could you also explain what you mean by the hurricane analogy? Sure, Ferenc. So, I mean, the, the study of revolutions has been dominated really by two perspectives traditionally. So one is a very determinist perspective, a structural perspective. Uh, this was particularly true of the literature on social revolutions, uh, in which revolutions are treated like earthquakes, that is, with pressure building up into some kind of inevitable explosion, almost automatically. You know, a scotch pole 
puts it in her study as revolutions are not made, they come. And they come when all the structural pressures are there that lead to this uh, ultimate explosion. And uh, I think the, this structural approach, and it's pretty widely recognized at this point, that it exaggerates the extent to which revolutions are made unavoidable by structural conditions. It views the emergence of revolution as automatic, as merely kind of awaiting the arrival of some kind of trigger. Any trigger will do, doesn't matter what it is. Um, and uh, if one trigger doesn't work, well, another trigger will eventually work. It's inevitable that revolution occur under this perspective. Um, and, um, you know, social life is actually replete with all kinds of potential triggers. Uh, that's something that I think we really haven't paid that much attention to. As I show in the book, in fact, there are plenty of cases in which the structural conditions associated with revolution are present as well as potential triggers, but revolution doesn't happen. Now there's another perspective, a second perspective, uh, what I call the indeterminist approach, uh, which uh, uh, argues that, um, you know, the conditions under which revolutions occur are amorphous. They are inscrutable in some ways. Uh, they therefore come as a surprise. And Timur Kuran's work, uh, you know, probably represents an extreme version of this. Uh, arguing that revolutions emerge from some kind of unknowable structure of hidden preferences. And we couldn't possibly fathom what's, what's there, what would make uh, revolution more likely in that case. And his analogy is not the earthquake, it's the wildfire. Um, and you, a single spark uh, suddenly bursts into a conflagration. Uh, but I would argue that um, Revolutions are not as shapeless and impenetrable as Curran would have us to believe that they actually occur where we would expect them to occur. Um, there is a structural dimension that's there uh, and they just don't inexplicably burst into flames. So the probabilistic approach that I outline is an attempt to navigate between these two extremes and to recognize that revolutions actually are structured events uh, but also to integrate the role of agency and of interaction into their emergence. And I make an analogy with hurricanes, as you mentioned. So, uh, you know, just for those who are, who don't know much about hurricanes and how they emerge, uh, you know, they, they emerge out of interactive processes. Um, they start as small scale tropical disturbances over the ocean. Um, as a result of interaction between, you know, the ocean's warm surface and the upper atmosphere. Um, and that interaction can transform, um, you know, a tropical disturbance into a kind of heat engine that starts a circular motion. Now, one in eight of these uh, ever strengthens into the next level uh, that what meteorologists call a tropical depression, uh, which with below gale force winds. And one out of every 10 of these tropical depressions ever strengthens and grows into what meteorologists call a tropical storm. Um, and that growth depends on interactive processes. So a lot of it has to do with uh, the wind, a vertical wind shear, and uh, which can tear apart these storms um, and, or can keep them together uh, and allow them to develop. So, uh, too strong wind shear breaks them up. 60% of tropical storms ever develop into a hurricane, uh, you know, with incredible force. 
Uh, and there are many points of time in which these tropical disturbances might not develop into hurricanes. It's a dynamic uh, process. And of course, we know many hurricanes never reach land. They die out at sea. They never smash into, um, you know, into the shore. But when they do smash into the shore, they often cause tremendous disruption and damage, right? So, um, you know, hurricanes sometimes appear as if there's a seeming randomness to them, but they clearly are structured events. Uh, structure, they're structured by oceanic and, and uh, atmospheric conditions. Uh, in fact, over the long run, you see distinctive patterns of, of um, hurricanes. Uh, they emerge in particular places, in the Atlantic Basin in particular, uh, which has been you know, susceptible to, uh, to hurricanes. And also, as we know, as a result of climate change, hurricanes have been becoming more frequent. Well, I make the analogy between hurricanes and revolutions, that is that these inter that they're structured, they're structured events, but interaction, interaction uh, matters critically and climate change is also a factor that's affecting them. Uh, sort of these structural factors, which are altering uh, the ground uh, on which uh, they emerge. So I argue that this combination of structural conduciveness and uncertain emergence is really how we should think about um, uh, revolutions in a probabilistic way, not with automaticity, uh, but large, they, you know, they occur in those places where we would expect them to emerge, uh, but there are plenty of instances in which they fail to develop, even though the structural conditions are conducive for them. And you know, what, whether they do develop depends upon dynamic interactions between uh, regimes and oppositions. So in this probabilistic approach, structural conditions don't, they translate into chance and risk. They don't translate automatically into outcomes. And it's only really through human action uh, that chance and risk become reality. That's really fascinating. And I also read your book uh, in a way that I thought you really insist on the relevance of both spatial and historical contexts for revolutions. And you study how these contexts have transformed over time, right? And if I may ask two very large or very general questions related to those points, how has this overall patterning of cases evolved over time? And what are the large scale structural factors that are associated with these changes? And then second, how would you compare and contrast what you call the urban civic revolutions, which are so uh, uh, prevalent these days, with the social revolutions of previous decades and centuries, you know, studied by Ted Scotchball and others. Yeah, so I argue that uh, one couldn't develop a universal theory of the causes of revolution. It's just not possible because of the diversity of purposes to which revolution has been put and the varied social forces that have been involved over history and the changing world historical circumstances under which revolutions have, have broken out. Um, so in my understanding, revolution is a, is a political project of regime change uh, imposed from below. Um, and it's been used uh, for a very wide variety of purposes, social revolutions, uh, which aim at transforming cl the class structures of society. Um, they're the most theorized version of revolution, but they really, you know, if you think of revolution as this mobilized regime uh, change from below, they're really only about a quarter or less than a quarter 
of all uh, revolutionary episodes. Um, and since the 1980s, they've largely died out. So we don't really have new social revolutions that have emerged uh, since, uh, since the 1990s, early 1990s. Uh, so attempts at social revolutions. So um, they've never, social revolutions were never the only form of revolution. Um, you know, revolutions also been used to transform monarchies into republics and to liberate territory from, a, from colonial rule and uh, to contain the abuses of despotic regimes and to institute a religiously based order um, in place of a secular order. Um, or sometimes, for instance, in the case of South Africa, to invert a dominant ethnic or racial order. Um, so, and, and there are other goals uh, as well. So uh, sometimes these purposes intermix. So I think um, I just want to dispel the idea that we could develop some kind of universal theory of the causes of revolution, because revolution has has changed, has, you know, historically over the course of history and over time. But if we look at the past two centuries, you know there there have been a number of significant changes that 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 um, stand out. So one of the most important changes has been the shifting locations of revolution, uh, whether they occur in the city or in the countryside. So revolution began in the 19th century as largely an urban project, and um, it was largely an armed urban project. Um, and uh, with armed insurrections, particularly in capital cities. And that was you know, where the nerve centers of government were located. Uh, that was where the social forces interested in revolution were also located. I talk about in my uh, book, something I call the proximity dilemma in revolution. And uh, that is that because uh, the coercive power of the state is uh, concentrated in cities, um, uh, cities are actually the most dangerous places to launch a revolution. But they're the most dangerous, not only for revolutionaries, they're, because uh, they are exposed to the coercive power of the state, more exposed to the coercive power of the state. They're also dangerous for regimes because that's where their nerve centers are, are, are concentrated. And so there's a trade-off that takes place and that has to be managed uh, by revolutions and by, uh, by revolutionaries and by regimes. And as the state's firepower increased over time, this old fashioned way of making revolution of armed insurrection in capital cities that dominated in the 19th century um, was pushed to the side. It had a very low um, rate of success. Beginning in the 1920s, revolution moved, uh, particularly social revolution moved to the countryside. It discovered the peasantry as its key social force. Um, and that had not been the case before, really. Um, and, you know, most people know that it was the decimation of the Chinese Communist Party in, in the cities of southern China that pushed Mao uh, off to the countryside. Um, and so in doing that, they, you know, revolutionaries traded uh, their capacity to disrupt direct the government directly for safety from government repression, that trade-off that I was talking about before. But in the late 20th century, revolution returned to the city. It returned to the city and it did so though under quite different circumstances than it had once been uh, in the city. So first of all, I mean, we're now in a predominantly urban world. So many people have concentrated into cities. Um, and uh, 1900, 13% of the world was urban. Today, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, uh, above 54%. Um, and 
in the early part of the 20th century uh, was dominated by what Scotch Bowl called the agrarian bureaucratic world. That is, uh, you know, um, a world dominated by aristocrats, by landed elites, by peasants. Um, and these were the social forces that mattered uh, to a great degree in her, uh, her uh, understanding of revolution. And those, that, those social forces, at least the landed elites have largely disappeared. Um, we live today in a globalized neoliberal economy in which information moves with great speed across political boundaries, particularly within urban environments. Uh, we live in a world today in which states have proliferated and consolidated. Uh, cities have grown enormously in size. And at, with that growth in, of cities in size, uh, new repertoires of revolutionary challenge have emerged based on the power of numbers rather than the power of arms in cities. Uh, that would not have been possible in uh, the early 20th century. So urbanization transformed the possibilities uh, for mounting revolution. For, so for instance, prior to 1985, three-fourths of uh, revolutionary, uh, revolutionary episodes in cities were armed. After 1985, three-fourths of revolutionary episodes in cities have been unarmed. Uh, and that transformation has, has, has been due to the use of the power of numbers, the growth of people in cities, the growth of cities, and so on. So these are some of the things I talk about in the book. I also talk about transformations of technologies, which allow for networking in ways that couldn't, uh, broader networking in ways that couldn't have happened earlier uh, in the history of revolution. Uh, you know, I talk about uh, even just the ability to hear people uh, at rallies, for instance, until the 1930s, uh, when the Nazis first uh, applied uh, loudspeakers to um, to uh, rallies, people couldn't hear speakers at rallies more than about uh, 10 meters distance. So, you know, technologically, uh, things have transformed in ways which allow the power of numbers to be utilized in a in a new way. It is indeed a very rich and a multi-layered argument uh, that you develop, and your book uh, focuses quite a bit on the urban civic repertoire, right, which is a way of leveraging the strategic advantages of large cities for the revolutionary challengers, and I would like us to zoom in on that point a, a bit more. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what this urban civic repertoire consists of, and what are some of the key aims of such urban civic revolutions? And can they be called democratic revolutions in your view, like it is so often asserted uh, in various uh, media reports? Uh, so I use this term urban civic uh, revolution to describe uh, revolutions that seek to overthrow abusive government by mobilizing as many people as possible in central urban spaces. Uh, they aim at regime change through the power of numbers rather than uh, through armed rebellion, street fighting, strikes for urban rioting. And since 1985, uh, they have been uh, about two-fifths of all revolutions in the world, uh, three-fifths of all urban revolutions. They've driven an increase in the number of revolutionary episodes around the world, which have, they have been increasing over time, and uh, largely due to the, to the growth of this type of revolution. It is, I would say, the most prevalent form of revolution if there is a single form uh, you know, that, that, that stands out in today's world. Um, 
So uh, these tactics of concentrating numbers in uh, in in open spaces, and you know, part of the book uh, also looks at these spaces and the development of these spaces uh, in cities. But uh, these these types of revolutions have ex an extraordinarily high rate of success compared to other forms of revolution. Um, and uh, that's due largely to the ways in which this repertoire effectively utilizes the advantages of large cities. Uh, in particular, proximity to centers, to the nerve centers of power, which threatens regimes uh, directly um, and, uh, and nerve centers of commerce. The power of numbers, uh, which can effectively uh, at times block um, the ability or the desire of a regime to repress uh, revolutionary challenges uh, because of the fear of backlash mobilization, particularly in proximity, close proximity to, to the nerve centers of government. Uh, and sometimes rulers also, you know, are affected by moral compunction as well. Uh, that does happen. Uh, and then highly networked uh, and resource populations in cities, but also the greater visibility that uh, these um, revolutions have uh, within uh, in um, these large urban uh, environments. And visibility is one of the key elements that these types of revolutions try to take advantage of. They also have thickened connections with the outside world, which they also seek to take advantage of. Um, so in contrast to rural rebellions, which generally use the rough terrain of the countryside in order to hide from uh, state repression, uh, and in contrast to urban armed revolts, which use the cityscape as a way of protecting uh, against uh, government repression, that is they use the buildings and, and uh, barricades and so on as ways of protecting themselves. Uh, these urban civic revolutions use the empty space, the empty space uh, of the public square and the boulevard. Um, and they use that to mobilize large numbers as a strategy for disrupting everyday uh, political and commercial life. They don't hide from government repression. In fact, they confront government repression uh, directly and they confront uh, governments precisely where they are, where the coercive power of the state is the strongest. Uh, that is in cities, even in capital cities and so on. So as I said, visibility is one of the key features of the urban environment that um, you know, these revolutions seek to exploit as a tool for increasing pressure on regimes and staying the hand of, of, the, of regime repression. Now, if social revolutions were associated with um, agrarian bureaucratic society uh, and they had disproportionate participation by peasants, urban civic revolutions are associated with a different set of social forces. Um, they have disproportionate participation by um, the middle class, uh, with sizable contingents of other groups, other urban groups, such as uh, skilled workers, manual workers, clerical workers, craftsmen, small business owners, students, the unemployed. Uh, and they've been associated with different structural conditions than social revolutions. So, um, you know, they're associated with the presence of corrupt, repressive regimes whose leaders have been in power for a very long time. They occur not in poor societies, but in sort of lower middle and middle uh, income societies. So now are these democratic revolutions and why do I call them urban civic revolutions? Um, well, there, there are a number of reasons why not. So um, 
Uh, first of all, there have been democratic revolutions that don't use these tactics. Um, and uh, throughout the 19th century, uh, that was the case, but many of the even 20th century uh, revolutions, what I would call liberal revolutions rather than democratic revolutions, uh, that they also uh, did not use urban civic tactics. But there are reasons also, other reasons why. So these revolutions concentrate very large numbers, hundreds of thousands of people in, a, uh, in open urban spaces in a matter of days and weeks. Uh, and by doing so, they draw on a very large variety of political and social forces. Um, so to maximize numbers uh, in this concentrated period of time, they forge what I would call a broad negative uh, coalition in a very makeshift manner, very rapidly constructed negative coalition. They pull in all who favor the removal of the incumbent regime, irrespective of purpose or political beliefs. And they rely on these uh, hastily assembled coalitional leadership. Sometimes they rely on no leadership uh, whatsoever. Uh, they use an inclusive civic nationalism. Uh, they, their demands are relatively minimalist. Um, they uh, seek to reclaim state power from corrupt and abusive regimes. It's a kind of least common denominator um, that can pull in as many participants as possible. So I use a number of surveys um, in the book and they show that the people who participate in urban civic revolutions are actually much more diverse than the people who don't participate but support the revolution or those who oppose the revolution. And uh, that has to do with the use of numbers. Uh, and uh, you know, as for democracy, this, these same surveys show that most of the participants are weakly committed to democratic values, relatively weakly committed to democratic values, and that most indicate that the main reasons that they participate have to do with corruption and um, uh, economic issues rather than the desire for political freedoms. So I prefer the term urban civic as opposed to democratic. Uh, there are other reasons which we'll talk, maybe talk about later, but I prefer that term urban civic because these revolutions are better understood uh, as revolutions against repressive and abusive government than revolutions for democracy. They're more about what people are struggling against than what they're struggling for. Right, right. I think that offers a very important corrective to what I would call the dominant understanding of what has been going on uh, in, in the cases of recent uh, revolutions. Uh, and I think it also shows uh, uh, that, that there are very important trade-offs uh, in play. And I think we definitely want to return to discussing them in more substance. Uh, but before we would do that, I would like to talk a bit about methodological questions and more generally the research process. Uh, and I may start by saying that you define a revolution, and I'm quoting, as a mass siege of an established government by its own population with the goals of bringing about regime change and affecting substantive political or social change, end of quote. And what you do in the book is that you work really extensively with statistical inference, right? While you also pay close attention to the details of several individual cases and thereby you can really study agency interactions emotions, ambiguities, and also the role of errors in revolutions, which can be quite substantial, obviously. And you know, what is really amazing about this book, I think, is that, I mean, one of the aspects is that you've built a large database of some 345 
revolutionary episodes, right? Revolutionary episodes being the basic unit of analysis uh, in this monograph. So could you perhaps tell our listeners a bit about how you combine these different approaches and how you have developed and analyzed this enormously rich uh, data set from a more uh, methodological point of view? Sure, and I should just uh, tell your listeners that the data set is available for anyone who wants to use it. Uh, it's on my website. They're welcome to download it and to look it over and um, and use it in whatever ways they're they're interested in doing so. So, I mean, the book is is uh, multidisciplinary and multi-method uh, in its approach. And part of the purpose of the book is to apply these some new sources of information to the study of revolution. Uh, sources of information that that traditionally hadn't been used. And, uh, you know, disciplinary boundaries have always been artificial in the study of revolution. Um, It's a topic that cuts across the social sciences. Um, And so the book um, pulls on a a wide variety of literature across uh, different disciplines from uh, political science, sociology, history, economics, geography, um, urban design, and so on. And it tries to unpack revolutions um, at a number of different levels of analysis. Um, You know, it begins at the global level and tries to look at the patterning that takes place uh, of revolutions across time. Um, It then kind of drills down to the levels of of episodes and what happens within episodes and the spaces within which uh, revolutions uh, unfold. Um, And then it comes back up, uh, oh, and it goes down to the individuals who participate in revolutions. Uh, through some unusual survey data. Um, and then it goes back up to the global level to look at uh, the role of violence and, and the outcomes of, of revolutions. So the data set, uh, oh, I, the data set um, basically attempts to embed a qualitative strategy within a quantitative strategy. Um, so for each episode uh, that is in this data set, um, I compiled a narrative about how the revolution began, how it developed, and how it ended. Um, I also, also a bibliography on, on uh, each case. And uh, so I use those cases, uh, you know, throughout the whole manuscript uh, to illustrate particular uh, projects, uh, particular processes. In terms of the data set, you know, there are no comparable records of uh, global records of revolution. Uh, though I would say that that kind of information has been sorely needed, uh, in part for identifying global trends, in part just to place individual cases into some kind of comparative context and to know what it is that you're looking at. Uh, so without that kind of data, for instance, we would never know whether revolutions have been gro- growing more frequent over time, uh, more or less violent over time, if they've been, been becoming less violent over time, when did they become less violent? Uh, and why? Uh, have they been becoming more or less successful in terms of the opposition uh, gaining power over time? So the, that, that was the purpose of uh, pulling together this kind of data. Um, and uh, it really fills a gap, I think, in the study of revolutions, which have been dominated by uh, a million perspective on inference. Uh, that is looking at particular cases, particularly paradigmatic cases, so the case selection uh, has been a big problem in terms of the study of revolution. Um, but uh, that kind of approach really can't you know, provide reliable 
or generalizable inferences. So analyzing the data is not that easy because revolutions are rare events. Um, they're rare events and they, they require, particularly if you're going to do a statistical analysis rather than just sort of lay out what the patterns are, statistical analyses of rare events can't rely on normal assumptions. There are all sorts of endogenous processes that take place within uh, revolution. So normal statistical methods are not fully appropriate in many cases. And I was lucky enough to have people to advise me on how to, how to go about uh, doing it properly. Uh, I, for those who don't wanna know, I've put all these details in appendices so they don't have to deal with it, uh, but they can deal with this if they want to deal with it. Uh, the book also uses uh, some unusual public opinion uh, surveys, uh, looking at individual level participation uh, from four revolutions, the Orange Revolution, the Tunisian Revolution, the Egyptian Revolution, and the Euromaidan Revolution, uh, which represent examples of the new urban civic um, repertoire uh, that plays the central role in the book. And these are, uh, you know, very unusual in the study of revolution in the sense that historically, maybe we knew about the individuals who participated from lists of people who were killed, maybe people uh, who were arrested, but typically those, uh, the, the information that we have about those individuals is pretty thin. Uh, you know, where, maybe where they were born or what year they were born in, where they came from, uh, what their occupation was and so on. But this survey data deals with all sorts of things, uh, including uh, things like uh, what people's political values are, what their political identifications are, what languages they speak, uh, you know, their religious activity, whether they went to the gym last week or not. Uh, so it's the most detailed, these are the most detailed records that we have about the individuals who participate in the revolution ever. Uh, and those, those are also available for people to use. So, you know, finally, uh, you know, this, the book, as I said, has this embedded uh, qualitative uh, dimension in it uh, to look at the interactions uh, that, that take place within revolutions and the spaces in which revolutions unfold. Uh, and all of those, um, all of that material is also part of the data set uh, that you can download and, and take a look at. Fantastic. That's definitely also a great service uh, to the profession and, and the further study of revolutions. But of course, you have analyzed uh, these data sets in a very, very thorough and convincing way, I would say. And another sort of special aspect of uh, the revolutionary city is that unlike many previous works of scholarship on this topic, you're also really concerned with consequences, right? What are the consequences of revolutions? And you explore the impact of them on order, on growth, equality, freedom, accountability, by using multiple comparisons and also conducting a counterfactual analysis. So, you know, in, in my own reading, one of the key points you make is that many of the advantages that aid urban civic revolutions in capturing power, in fact, then end up hindering the prospects for more substantive changes uh, in their wake. So in that sense, you know, these revolutions tend to bring about substantial positive changes in some areas, but their impacts also tend to be less conspicuous and more uncertain, right? So it, it sounds like revolutions in our age are, in a sense, apt at changing regimes, 
but maybe less apt at changing states and societies as such. So I was wondering whether you would perhaps be willing to expand on these observations, you know, whether you agree with them in the first place, and what more can we say about the consequences of revolutions and how they have changed over time? Yeah, and I think that that question of the consequences of, of revolutions is the, within social science, the big understudied uh, topic uh, that really people need to pay attention to a lot more. So we have a lot of work about why revolutions occur in the first place, uh, why once they break out, whether they succeed, but what happens after revolutions, there's a lot less theorization uh, about it. I mean, there are plenty of works by historians uh, on this, obviously, on specific cases, but I'm just talking about the theorization of it and what happens afterwards. It's, a, I think, a, a, an area that's really ripe for researchers uh, to go into. Uh, so the urban civic revolutions that I described, they have, as I said, a higher rate of success than other types of, of, of revolutions uh, in the past. Um, they're less ambitious in their goals uh, because uh, they try to pull as many people as possible uh, you know, into revolution. And the post-revolutionary governments that they give birth to are less capable of bringing about uh, substantive change in their wake. They're more um, constrained uh, by their coalition, but at the same time, that coalition is more fractious uh, and th those, uh, those regimes are less stable. They're less long lasting. And a lot of that, as I show in the book, has to do with the fact that these are uh, rapidly convened um, revolutionary uh, processes that occur uh, that mobilizes as many people as possible um, in a very short period of time. I mean, something like, uh, you know, the um, people power revolution in the Philippines lasted for four days, <laughs> for four days. Uh, the Orange Revolution uh, lasted for, uh, you know, something like 17 days. So these are really short uh, compared to prolonged revolutionary processes like social revolutions, which usually involve civil wars that extend over a long period of time and allow revolutionary movements to socialize individuals into a particular ideology or a particular world worldview and also allow, allow them to select individuals into the revolutionary movement. So you, urban civic, revolutions don't want to select individuals. They want as many people as possible to participate. Um, and so uh, successful urban civic revolutions, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, parents, they do lead to some substantial uh, improvements in political freedoms and government accountability relative to pre-revolutionary regimes. But those achievements fall short of the average levels of uh, electoral democracies, mineral, minimally defined uh, over the past century, um, which is one of, the, one of the other reasons why I'm a little reticent to call these democratic revolutions. A lot of the movements toward democracy occur after revolution. What happens after revolution? It's not the revolution that makes the democracy. It what, it's what happens after revolution uh, that you know, determines whether a, a revolutionary regime will become a democracy or not. Uh, but the levels of achievement in you know, the first several, several years of, of political freedoms, they generally fall, fall short of the levels of uh, electoral democracies and they tend to deteriorate 
uh, on average over time across all cases. So um, the other big thing is that um, urban civic revolutions inherit the state intact from the old regime. You know, one of uh, Lenin's dictums was you needed to smash the state and create a brand new state. Uh, and of course that was a very violent process. Uh, but urban civic revolutions inherit the state with all its corrupt relationships. And these were the corrupt relationships, which in fact, in many cases, uh, incentivized people to engage in revolt in the first place. Uh, so as a result, corruption after revolution is almost identical to levels of corruption before revolution. Uh, and practically identical to societies that experienced failed urban civic revolutions. Uh, and it's far greater, far, far greater than levels of corruption in the average democracy. So these are all things which are, you know, constrain uh, urban civic revolutions. Now, if you compare that to social revolutions, of course, social revolutions led to an enormous decline in political freedoms. Uh, they, they sub, social revolutions substantively mattered, whether for good or for bad. They led to enormous declines in political freedoms. They led to increase in political killing. Uh, in many cases, they did excel at creating political order uh, and they introduced high levels of social equality. Uh, but the impact of urban civic revolutions is, is um, more uncertain, it's more ambiguous. Um, and uh, because they try to mobilize as many people as possible, they pull in a wide variety uh, of people and they lack the hierarchical organization to be able to pull things together. Um, and uh, that diversity comes back to haunt them uh, after revolution. Um, they are more successful at gaining power, but more fractious, less stable, less capable of introducing substantive and lasting change uh, in their wake. Uh, this has been a very rich and fascinating conversation with many uh, great insights. And as a last question, I still wanted us to talk a bit about the contemporary period and where we have arrived uh, today. Uh, I should perhaps say that you argue in the book that in recent decades, revolutions, and I'm quoting, have tended to occur in lower middle and middle income countries that lacked large oil resources and faced a globalized and unipolar international environment, end of quote. And you argue at one point that the two phases of neoliberal development lie at the center of much of the animus fueling these contemporary urban revolutions, right? The rapid growth of urban middle-class populations who have been frustrated by corrupt and repressive regimes in these, in these countries, and also the contraction of public goods provision and subsidies to many of these very same uh, urban groups, right, as a consequence of neoliberal transformations. So in other words, you know, when we talk, um, talk about urban uh, civic revolutions, we are in a sense talking about revolutions in the age of neoliberalism, at least that's certainly a potential reading of the argument. Uh, and you also state that in an age when liberal democracy in a sense served as the universal standard of sorts as a kind of universal model, numerous regimes grew at least outwardly less autocratic, became more hybridized and more dependent on fostering economic growth for their legitimation and also more integrated into global economic normative or information orders. 
and that this partial transformation of such regimes, in fact, made them increasingly vulnerable to disruption through such urban revolutions, right? So I was wondering whether you would care to comment on how these urban revolutions may really be viewed as revolutions in the age of neoliberalism on the one hand and in the age of US global hegemony on the other. And would you perhaps say that revolutions may be changing again as we speak due to the current weakening of both neoliberalism and US global hegemony? Yeah, I think there's no question that the international and the transnational have always played a large role in revolution. Um, going back to the beginning of modern revolution. Uh, it's something that, you know, has come increasingly to be emphasized in studies of revolution and rightfully so, uh, because revolutions are not isolated events. Uh, they tend to be embedded uh, in, you know, geopolitical, political, economic communications uh, networks, uh, which are transnational, uh, you know, the role of diffusion, uh, of revolutions uh, has, uh, is critical. So uh, that was true in the past and that's true today. Um, urban, urban civic revolutions occurred largely in the context of the end of the Cold War, uh, a unipo unipolar geopolitical system, dominance of the US, uh, the dominance of a neoliberal globalized economic order uh, the U.S. played a role in facilitating a number of these revolutions. They may be driven by domestic circumstances, but nevertheless, the the geopolitical atmosphere was conducive uh, was conducive uh, for these types of revolutions. And you know, the geopolitical atmosphere for social revolutions declined. The conducive atmosphere declined with the with the end of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism. Uh, so geopolitics uh, play plays you know. Uh, a role, um, and you know the neoliberalism also, as as you mentioned, with the growth of the global middle class under neoliberalism, and the periodic crises, uh, economic crises that are fostered uh, that have been fostered by neoliberalism, all of those played a significant role uh, in urban civic revolts. Not all urban civic revolts emerged out of um, you know uh, the crises of neoliberalism, but a significant number did. And globalization has played a big role, played a big, big role in urban civic uh, revolts. Urban civic revolts had very high rates of cross-national diffusion. And so uh, that, um, you know, the, the role of uh, globalized networks of increasing interactions across societies of, the, of uh, communication systems and the instantaneous character uh, and transnational character of communication systems, all of those play a really big role. I mean, just compare, in the book, I, I make a comparison between Lenin in 1917 and the contemporary Tunisian revolution, right? So 2011 Tunisian revolution. So in 1917, Lenin learned about uh, the events of the February revolution in Russia. After those events, uh, he, he, he learned about about them largely after those events had already played themselves out. And uh, today, you know, in contemporary, the contemporary world, uh, diasporas around the world play direct roles as information sites uh, as occurred in the Tunisian revolution. A lot of the acts of repression and the protests were filmed on cell phones. And 
conveyed internationally to uh, the Tunisian diaspora, about a quarter of the quarter of the Tunisian population that was abroad at the time, who stored them in informational sites that then became accessible to people and could be relayed in basically in real time uh, to what was happening. So this is this is a transformation of the globalized world. It's changed the way in which revolutions uh, occur. Now, you know, that U.S. global hegemony has essentially uh, ended, I guess you could say, and uh, neoliberalism also seems to be on the wane. Even globalization, I think you could say, is under challenge given the pandemic uh, and uh, the Russian war in Ukraine. Um, you know, so these are all, all issues that could have effects on revolution, on how revolution evolves. Revolution, as I mentioned at you know, the beginning of our conversation, it's always been an evolving pro um, project, uh, a project used for different purposes. Um, and it will in the future evolve as well and change. You know, as American hegemony and, and the liberal international order uh, has retreated, the United States, has, for instance, has turned inward towards its own problems, of uh, polarization and economic distress. The traditional emphasis on um, American emphasis on human rights and promotion of democracy is thinned, and that's had an effect uh, on revolutionary processes. And at the same time, Russia and China have come to play larger roles in supporting autocratic their autocratic allies in the Middle East, in Africa, in Latin America, uh, providing investment, providing weapons and resources, providing training uh, for armed forces, even providing armed force. Uh, in some cases. So both Russia and China define themselves as anti-revolutionary powers in today's world, particularly if, if, um, uh, if we're talking about liberal revolutions. Um, they've been spooked by the waves, waves of rebellion in the post-communist region uh, and in the Middle East. And these regimes have also pioneered new technologies of controlling dissent domestically using digital technologies, uh, and they've begun to export those technologies uh, to their allies, export them abroad. So all this makes the global geopolitical context much less conducive to urban civic revolt in some ways. Uh, so, so far we haven't witnessed a diminu diminution in the emergence of uh, new revolutionary episodes around the world. They continue to grow in terms of their frequency, but what we have witnessed is a drop in the success rate of revolutions uh, in recent years, a growing level also of crowd violence in uh, urban revolutions, urban civic revolutions turning to, uh, to more violent uh, methods. Uh, Euromaidan, I think, is a good example of that. This is not armed a return to armed revolt in cities, uh, but rather, uh, a return to riotous violence in cities. Uh, the revolutionary riot in the 19th century was one of the one of the ways. 19th and early 20th centuries was one of the ways in which uh, revolutions uh, were fought. So, in their keenness to counter urban, the urban civic repertoire, uh, regimes have embraced more violent tactics uh, towards unarmed crowds. They've learned in essence, uh, about the urban civic uh, repertoire, and they've devised new ways of countering it. So learning is one of the things that takes place within the, uh, the development of revolution that has shifted uh, the ways in which revolution evolves. So crowds in response to this greater level of violence have reverted to 
uh, to the time-worn tactic of the revolutionary riot. Uh, and riotous violence in revolutions is somewhat compounded by the inability of conventional uh, party and civil society leaders to control digitally mobilized leaderless crowds. One of the things about the internet is that uh, it creates relatively weak ties uh, between the crowds that are mobilized uh, within these revolutions and traditional political parties. And that means, for instance, uh, that, that these parties have a hard time constraining their followers. Uh, so this is a more volatile synthesis in cities, a more volatile synthesis of the revolutionary riot and the urban civic repertoire, which I think in fact represents, you know, the, at least the immediate future of revolution in cities. I do think revolution will continue to be in cities, but I think it's likely to, to change somewhat in its form. But, you know, revolution also can be repurposed in new ways. And with the demise of the neoliberal order and the growth of uh, within country inequality around the world, it could gain a deeper social agenda, for instance. Uh, Historically, democracies have been thought to be immune from revolution uh, because, you know, why should you engage in revolt if you can wait uh, to remove a leader uh, at the ballot box? Why take the risk of revolution? Uh, but today that may be changing. Uh, it may be changing. So uh, with polarization, with populism, uh, with de-democratization uh, in advanced industrial societies, it may be that uh, democracies uh, as they move further away from democracies in their, in their process of de-democratization may become more susceptible to revolutionary appeal. Um, I think for instance, under Trump, the United States became more vulnerable to revolution. It started to exhibit a number of the same uh, structural features that we associate uh, with those regimes which are vulnerable to urban civic uh, revolt. And of course we know a number of other regimes around the world, which uh, are similarly approximating competitive authoritarian uh, regimes moving away from de-democratization. So it, it could well be that that will create a new, uh, a new type of, uh, or a new set of conditions that would make uh, democracies uh, more vulnerable to revolution as well. I think that also really comes to show that in many ways we continue to live in the age that this major monograph studies in so many original details and analyzes with such precision, even if the situation has gotten so much more volatile uh, in a number of respects. And with that, I would like to thank you so much uh, for that answer and also the entire conversation, Mark. Uh, well, thanks for having me, Terence. Today, I have had the pleasure of hosting Mark Beisinger to discuss his major new monograph, The Revolutionary City, Urbanization and the Global Transformation of Rebellion. This is a book that contributes numerous original insights to the study of revolutions and is an essential read for all those who care about the study of historical and political change. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope you have enjoyed our discussion today. Until the next time.